I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Mark Gold has devoted much of his professional career to studying addictions. He is currently a professor and the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Florida. Dr. Gold, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Addiction has been considered as one of the major public health problems in our society. Do you agree? Yes, I think addiction is the nation's number one public health problem. If you think about causes of death and just look at the the number one cause of death, it would be related to tobacco, uh, over 400,000 deaths a year. Number two would be obesity and lack of exercise, which I think is part of the addictive spectrum. Number three would be secondhand smoke, then alcohol, then firearms, suicide, drug deaths and accidents, all of which have major contributing factors related to drugs of abuse. Well, what would you consider, what could you offer us in the sense of a good working definition of addiction? Well, the, um, the DSM has evolved so that addiction used to require withdrawal and was really focused on the kind of drug withdrawal syndromes that you think of when you think of opiate addiction. With the cocaine epidemic and then animal research, animal models, it was clear that addiction is more like a pathological attraction, a fatal attraction. So it's continued compulsive use in the face of dire, often life-threatening consequences in many different spheres in the person's life, and that recognizing that your drug use has caused you to lose your job or your drug use has caused you to compromise your family relationships or your drug use has caused you to have health consequences. Recognizing that doesn't help you at all. Uh, Insight has no power in stopping your use. Every day you go to bed saying you'll never use again and every morning you use again. It's very interesting that you put tobacco use at the very top of the list. I think people all know that tobacco is an addicting drug, but they really don't combine it with the sense of addictions. Well, that's true. And when people think about drug testing, they often ignore testing for tobacco smoking. That's a big interest of mine, especially in prenatal care. If you were to look at the causes of low birth weight babies and compromised maternal fetal compromise, you'd, you'd, you'd see tobacco smoking is at the top of the American College of OBGYN's list. It's true that you get fetal alcohol syndrome on the toxic drinking side, but the the numbers for tobacco-exposed neonates are much, much greater, and psychiatrists have been very interested in children of tobacco-smoking mothers. In fact, Biederman's whole group at Harvard has focused a lot of attention on the possible role of tobacco-smoking mothers in the whole ADD, ADHD explosion. So, you know, again, just to be redundant, people who might listen to this would think that they tuned into an issue on tobacco and they expected something on cocaine and heroin. <laughs> well, we can talk about cocaine. Oh, we will. I, I want to. <laughs> but, but, I mean, uh, if you say, well, okay, well, what's the, globally, what's the number one drug problem? It would be tobacco. Um, the United States, what's the number one cause of death? They're all tobacco-related. And partly it's because the disease institutes, heart, lung, cancer, have claimed tobacco-related problems as their own problem. And oftentimes we think about 
heart disease is the nation's number one killer, or cancer, but rarely do we consider the cause. And so when the CDC considers the cause, tobacco is number one. You know, many people say that they dabble with drug use, and I'm going to allow us to consider that to include tobacco use. And they may argue that because they can dabble and can control it, that it's not really an addiction. How would you respond to them? Every um, drug addict that I've ever met had control of their drug use at one time. And then they lost it. Right. Loss of control is part of the definition of addiction. And unfortunately, there's really no animal model for loss of control. And we don't understand it very well. We could, we could discuss it as a construct. What is it that allows some people to lose control on the first time they smoke crack? Mm -hmm. And other people will tell you that it was the 10th time. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? And what is, why do some people lose control when they have a beer? And other people can have one drink every day for much of their adult life. So I guess one of the questions is actually what causes an addiction. Right. Well, that's a big question. And if you could answer that one, I guarantee you that you'll be up there for a Nobel Prize. But in animals, what we know is that animals will self-administer drugs. And that's been very important for us here at the Brain Institute and elsewhere because animal models for addiction help us understand that it's not the person's fault. First use may be a person has free will and, and they're responsible. Over time, drugs change the brain and in doing so cause a brain disease that wasn't there before and thereafter continued compulsive use is part of the acquired addictive disease. Some of the work that's being done is actually looking at the real-time effects of using drugs. And, and you are noticing that there are permanent problems very commonly seen? Now, this is kind of is very tricky in a way because, you know, you could look at in, in animals, some drugs cause changes to gene expression, like gene-related proteins that might be essential for memory. Some drugs cause changes just on a binge weekend that last for months, rarely do we do studies that are long enough to tell you how long does it take for the, the changes caused by drugs to be reversed or for the person to return to normal? But I think Nora Volkov's work before she became the head of NIDA and other people's work suggests that, the, that previously held notions that drug use and addiction are, kind, are somewhat related to, like, taking an SSRI, let's say, and easily reversible, those beliefs can't be supported anymore. For cocaine, the um, Brookhaven group, where Nora Volkov was before, has shown that six months after abstinence, the brain's dopamine system is still not anywhere near normal. And we know from other studies that the, it takes a long time for the brain to recover from drug abuse and addiction. How long is not known, but I, I suspect that part of the problems that people have in treatment is that the treatment tends to be much shorter term than what the brain
brain would suggest would be necessary. Are we to the point in the science where we can give a reasonable prediction of how long it would take for a brain to recover from marijuana exposure or cocaine exposure? No. We only can do that experimentally. So in Brookhaven, they have PET imaging for the dopamine system, and when they look at people repeatedly, they show persistent abnormalities at six months. So that could be one of the reasons why it's so hard to undo an addiction. I think that's a good point. Treatment has been dictated by a variety of factors not related to the notion that addiction is a brain disease. Since everyone now agrees addiction is an acquired disease of the brain and causes changes in brain neurotransmitter systems and function, then using the brain science to determine how long treatment should be makes much more sense. But we are not there yet. The spinoff is fascinating because so much of the medical legal system is involved, or shall we say focused, under the notion that if you stop the drugs and go into treatment for 30 days, that you're going to be better. Right. And this is suggesting that that's not quite the case. Yeah, I don't think that's the case. I think that it's possible that a person who is in treatment for a month or three months in a residential setting, that the what's learned is that the person learns how to not take drugs. They learn how to use a support system to not take drugs. and the, that, But the time is the essential ingredient in successful treatment. So there's memory for drugs, but there's memory for a lot of things. You know, when I think about it, I would think about a memory for a loss, that you would remember the loss of a parent or some tragic event forever, and it could make you sad and does make you sad, but you don't necessarily do anything about that. Over time, you still have the feeling, but you recover. So that's very interesting. Could it be that some of the slippage, when, for example, people who um, use cocaine, then they pass the area where they use the cocaine or they bought the cocaine, yeah. and they, they, it's a memory. It's, it's a, yes. That's a very interesting thought. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, these, this, this is, I mean, there's memory for drugs that I think is uh, persistent because the brain is unprepared by evolution for the intensity of drug-related euphoria and drug-related neurotransmitter release, so that the brain would naturally see a drug event as so novel and so important that it may be like a cave person seeing a saber-toothed tiger. Mm -hmm. And forgetting it is not an option. But what is an option is kind of using your higher brain in therapy or, or in an AA meeting to say, yeah, I remember that, but I also remember this, and I'm not going there again. Is there a difference between addictions, if we can even go that way? Can we say that there is some sort of difference between those who become alcoholics versus those who are marijuana addicts or heroin addicts? You know, I've tried to look at this um, by looking at physician addicts and health professional addicts. And if you do take a look at them, and they get optimal treatment. So, for example, um, their treatment horizon might be five years with supervised testing and therapy and so forth. Um, if you look at all different drug abuse categories in physician addicts, alcoholics versus cocaine addicts versus opiate addicts, 
the outcomes are the same. So I'm kind of thinking that there's one addiction disease and that um, there are many ways to get there. It may be that alcohol has a different pattern. Maybe you need teenage binge drinking and teenage alcohol abuse to set the stage for alcohol dependence as you get older. Maybe you need teenage cigarette smoking to set the stage for lifelong cigarette smoking, but you only need to smoke crack no matter when at some time, and you can become uh, cocaine dependent. There also is the frequent argument that addictions run in families or there's some sort of cultural or other bias that makes people more vulnerable to addictions. Any thoughts about that? I think that that's likely. It's likely that for, if you had a guess, if I had a guess and you said, tell me uh, what, what, what disease in psychiatry would we have a blood test for risk first, I would say alcohol dependence. I think that there are good studies in some families that have virtually every member who's as alcohol abuse or alcohol dependence. There are some that make it possible to understand that. In animals, animals that are bred for alcohol reinforcement capacity, kind of like the Indiana University rats, they release more dopamine per dose of alcohol than anyone else. So um, uh, I think that that's going to make sense. Okay, so then that goes into a perfect question. You've you've worked with addictions for your life. You've contributed enormously to the field. What signs should a person look for if they suspect someone in their family or themselves is leaning into that direction? Normally, people look at behaviors and daily practices. So, for example, if it's a child and they're... uh, training for track, you'll notice that they can't do it anymore. They may say they'd rather be a rock and roll musician, but they just can't get up and train it. So many parents will say they see a change in interest and a change in the ability to sustain goal-directed behaviors that previously were important. That might be seen in schoolwork, social networks, athleticism, things like that. In, in a child, the course can be very accelerated because clearly the brain isn't developed and drugs can confuse the brain into thinking that they're part of puberty or they're part of the brain's new adolescent growth spurt. And in doing that, they become more powerful than you would have the same drug over the same time in adults. So, My best example would be if you smoke cigarettes at 13, you're likely to smoke as many as you can afford, a pack or more a day at 30. But if you start smoking at 30, you're only likely to smoke a cigarette or two a day. So as you said, the avoiding the first use of the drug, or in in this case of the cigarettes, delaying it actually, although there's no good way to go about this, but it might make it a little bit better. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you have to recognize that that there are critical periods and that you don't want to get, you don't want to be in the middle of a critical period of development. So parents know this. They'll say, well, gee, I'd like my child to learn two languages. So they teach them when they're young because the brain can accommodate learning many languages easily at an early age before the critical period ends and before the brain kind of shuts that down. 
same thing for music. Parents will say, I'd like my child to learn how to play the piano. They don't say, well, I'm going to teach them, give them lessons at 19. You know, that's ridiculous. It's too late. Too late, exactly. So you, you would like, in the best of all worlds, you would like for the period of adolescence to involve the child learning what their actual strengths and limitations are, working toward goals, whatever they are, but to make a contribution to helping others, to their own academic and social success. And you wouldn't want them to learn instant, non-relevant solutions to uh, tasks. So, for example, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, so I'd say... Critical periods have been minimized, except when you talk to a parent who's lost a child due to drugs. You presented some slides at a recent uh, speech that you gave. In, in the 1960s or 70s, 2% or 4% of the people by the time they're a certain age had tried drugs. And in recent years, it was like 25 or 30% of the people in that same age group had already tried drugs. Well, I think that... that that's that's been a trend that's gone on since the 60s. So at one I mean I think I was discussing well how you know if you were, grew up in the 60s yes it's true there was drug experimentation but in 1965 only 2% of the entire population had ever tried an illegal drug even once. Right now it's way over 50%. You can't say that that's helped make the United States of America smarter, more successful, more compassionate, more empathic, more giving. And it speaks directly to your concerns about using the drugs during the period of development. And so if so many people are starting in adolescence, they're, they're working with a handicap. They are. And I think that you're seeing people having to take, go to memory clinics and learning problems because of drug-related memory issues. So now they're on psychostimulants when really all they needed to do is not use drugs in the first place or stop them. This is absolutely a fascinating topic and obviously critical to our society and in our development of our children. Mark Gold has developed, again, much of his professional career to studying addictions. He is currently a professor and the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Florida. For those of you who don't know it, Dr. Gold has contributed so much to the understanding of addictions, and we as a society thank you, sir. Thank you. And on an individual basis, we thank you for joining us for this conversation, and we wish you a good day. Thanks very much.